0: Good morning. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here again. As you may remember, we're in the middle of a four-week series on the Beatitudes. And last week, we talked about the first two and the idea of, uh, of, of humility. Uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, of brokenness. This week, we're going to look at the next two Beatitudes, and, and we're going to talk about um, humility But we could fill a stadium if we promised what's promised on that hillside so long ago. On the Sermon on the Mound, Jesus says, first of all, that he's going to, blessings or goodness or happiness. And he says two things in this section we're going to look at today. He says that you'll inherit the earth and you'll be satisfied. And we could fill the Amway Center if we said... Everybody come in. We're gonna tell you how to get a great inheritance and we're gonna tell you how to be satisfied. We could, we could fill the place up. And that incredible communicator, Jesus, as he stood on the hillside, drew people in with this compelling invitation for satisfaction, for inheritance. But then the way he talks about it, and what he says will give us inheritance, what he says will satisfy, oh, it's, it's just fascinating. And so before we talk about him, before we look at his word, let's talk to him. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thanks for the privilege to be here. You know that we are thirsty people. We are hungry people. We're not very satisfied You know each one of us. Would you blow through here like a mighty wind this day? Would you let the words from that sermon so long ago on the side of the hill that you told, would you let those words echo through this room again this day? And would you change us? We've become fickle we're more fear-based than desire-based, and we need you. Father, for the people in this room that are too comfortable, would you use this time together to disrupt them? For the people that are disrupted, would you use this time to comfort them? We pray this in the powerful, powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So last week, we, we looked at brokenness. This week, we'll look at humility. Next week, at kindness. And then the last week, Jeff will be back. And he'll kind of bring the whole Beatitudes back together as he talks about um, about peacekeepers and how we should be. So there was a yawn there that I heard. You know you're in trouble when you've only been speaking about 20 seconds and you hear yawns. I'm just saying, it's okay. Hey, before we, can I tell you a quick little story? I know many of you look at me, you immediately think elite athlete. Um, <laughs> but there was a day a long time ago back in college where I worked at a, at a racket club, swimming, uh, swimming club for the summer. And we had a, we had a tennis pro. His name was Skip. And, and Skip actually played in the, in the pro circuit and, and then he ended up being a pro at this, at this club. And I, I was a lifeguard and we got to be pretty good friends. I never played much tennis. He kept inviting me to play tennis with him. So I decided I'd, I'd go and I, so there in my basketball shorts and ragged t-shirt, I walk out on this court and he was, he, he had everything, borrowed one of his rackets and we started to play. And I thought it was holding my own pretty well. You I know, mean, we, he would hit it, I'd hit it back. And I thought, you know, I'm holding my own against a pro. And then we, we played for a little while, and then a shot, almost by accident, I hit a shot really well. And it crossed the net. It, it did it kind of a cross way over to the other side. And then, out of instinct, I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden, this kind, <laughs> gentle, tapping the ball back to me became an animal. Uh, and he. He moved like a gazelle across the Serengeti, and he, he, he rushed over to think, hit the ball, put a backspin of some kind on it, went to the net, and then just stopped. I mean, it was just, and I realized he had incredible ability, he had incredibly power, he had an incredible amount of power that he was holding back for my sake that he had power, he had ability, he had skills far beyond. But for my sake, he chose to um, to be meek. Now, we don't use the word meek much in our language. It, we, most of us, when we think of meek, we think weak. Um, or we think lazy, or we think wimpy. I think you'll find when we look at scripture today that this idea of of Jesus saying that the meek will inherit the earth. That there's a very different understanding of meek than God has. It is purposely um, controlling your power for the sake of not to destroy the other. And waiting and trusting on the results will work out. It's an amazing idea. It's very different than what most of us think when we think about meek. Now, it's really interesting. If we're going to go, if we're going to figure out the right definition for meek based on what the people heard that day on the mountainside, we're going to have to go back to scripture because we don't use meek very often in our own language. So we're going to see what they would have heard. The first thing I'd suggest that they would have heard, as you know, we're in the passage in Matthew where it says, And he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. That was last week. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Now the people listening that day, if they were scholars, they would have immediately thought, I've heard that before they would have been right because Jesus is almost quoting Psalms 37. I'm going to read a little bit of Psalms 37 to you because we're trying to figure out together the idea of what is this idea of meek? Because the idea that I'm going to inherit the earth and the idea that I'm going to have blessing, that seems like a pretty good thing. And so maybe it would be helpful for us to understand what Jesus might've been talking about when he talked about the meek. I'm gonna read a passage for you. It's in Psalms 37. And it begins, you could have written this Psalm. It begins with, or maybe you might've written it to your neighbor who is concerned because the bad guys seem to be winning. Or maybe you could have written it to somebody you know that was struggling because it starts with, do not fret, Because those who are evil do not be envious of those who do wrong. For like grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Now, what he's saying here is the natural tendency is to begin to look at the landscape of of life. And to look at the landscape of your life and say, the bad guys are winning. This isn't what I. This isn't working. This isn't working. Evil people seem to do better than good people. Evil people seem to get ahead. Evil people seem to be rewarded. I feel foolish. This isn't working. And so this psalm is really a psalm about that. And I would bet almost everybody in this room at some point could understand or agree with or, or, or that rings true to their feeling of, man, what's God doing? Why do do the wrong people seem to win? Why is it the intimidating people seem to win? What's this meek stuff? That just doesn't seem to work. I'm gonna skip down to verse seven. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently on him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their, their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, don't worry, it leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look at them, they will not be found but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. Almost an exact quote from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount um, verse 11. Now this week, why don't you read psalm, that psalm and, and study that a little bit because that's a psalm of why, what do I do when the bad guys keep winning? When it seems foolish to to trust uh, that, that, you're, that God's going to do something differently. And so read that psalm because that's really the context of of what Jesus is saying. Now, there are two people in the Bible that are called meek. One is Moses, and let me read that passage. You'll find in Numbers 12, just an interesting place. Miriam and Aaron begin to talk against Moses. See, they didn't like the woman that he married. It's the wrong race. For you had married a Cushite, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? So they're talking among themselves saying, Moses sure made a bad choice. Did, did God only speak through Moses? Doesn't he also speak through us? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. And then listen to the next verse. In the middle of opposition, Moses is about to, there's opposition, there's criticism. The middle of opposition, here's the verse God then adds. Now, Moses was a very humble man, or in some of your translations, it will say, and Moses was a very meek man, more meek than anyone else on the face of the earth. That seems like a pretty strong admonition. Now, I don't know that I'd call Moses weak. I mean, after all, he he set a whole nation free, faced down the Pharaoh, took people across the Red Sea, Marched them through the desert for 40 years. It seems to me like most of us wouldn't call Moses weak. He took the Ten Commandments. And most of us wouldn't call him weak. But the Bible says he was the meekest man in all the earth. Well, what happens next is really interesting. What happens next in this passage in Numbers is that God then defends Moses and puts his two critiques uh, puts them out. God defends him. Now I would suggest to you that most of us live in this moment before before God takes them. Well, let me just read this passage. At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, come out to the tent and meet me there, all three of you. When God calls you out to the tent, that doesn't sound like a good thing. So the three of them went out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance of the tent and he summons Aaron and Marian. And the two of them stepped forward and he said, Listen to my words. And at that point, um, it's enough just to say um, Moses's life was vindicated. Most of us live our lives between opposition and vindication. And God calls us to live meekly in that place, to live humbly in that place. He calls us to live in that tension, that moment between we have opposition. It doesn't seem to be working. The wicked seem to be prospering. The bad guys seem to be winning. And everything in me wants to defend myself. Everything in me wants to crush everybody. Everything in me wants to, wants to use my power against whatever I can. You live in the tension of that moment between opposition and vindication. Vindication is the inheriting of the land. And what God's calling you to live, to get his blessing, to be a happy person, to get a great inheritance, is to learn to live meek in the midst of that opposition. That doesn't mean, well, before we get to a meaning, let's look at one more person who's called meek in the Bible. The other person that's called meek in the Bible is Jesus. Uh, he calls, when, when he is riding into the city on a donkey, it's said that he's, he rides into the city and he's gentle and meek. Another time that Jesus is called meek, he calls himself meek, and that's when he is talking about the verse that Jack said at the very beginning of our of our service in Matthew eleven twenty eight. It says this: "Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am." In some of your translations, it's the same root word in uh, I am meek, I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. So the two people that are called meek in scripture are Moses and Jesus. The picture of the yoke is the picture that Jesus is saying, put my yoke on you. I won't, I won't crush you with the burden. You can come with me under the yoke because he has power. And he has power that he won't use to crush you. So all of a sudden meekness doesn't sound so wimpy when the people in the Bible that are being referred to as as meek are Moses and Jesus. So the first thing I think we need to understand if we're gonna take seriously this beatitude, if we're gonna take seriously this this picture, I think the first thing we've got to, Begin to think about, the first thing we've got to begin to to wonder if it could possibly be true is that you're not powerless. That because of the work of Christ, you have, you have power. Meek is not not having power. Meek is choosing to use your power differently. Not to crush, not to destroy. It's also not needing to defend yourself. So much of my life, so much of my life I spend falsely trying to prove myself to people. Trying to prove myself to this group or that group or my friends. Trying to prove myself. I I do a lot of counseling and so many of the people I see Women as well, but a lot of men seem to be living their life to prove something. What would it be like? What would it be like if just one day, if just one day in our lives we took seriously the words of God and just one day in our lives we began to think about this idea of because I've been chosen by Christ, I have nothing to prove. Because I've been chosen by Christ, I I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to constantly live to, to, to make it work. What would it be like? That would be such freedom. So the first thing I would suggest to you, if we're going to understand meekness, is you've got to understand that you are chosen and there is power and you have nothing to prove. It's already been proven. It's already been proven. You know, my wife, she's got a funny way to read books. She likes to read novels. And what she does is she reads the first couple of chapters and finds out the characters. And then she reads it long enough to find out what the plot's going to be and like what the conflict is and, you know, what's going to happen and, and, you know, kind of the setup of the, of the whole book. And then she skips to the end of the book and reads the end. And she'll tell you that she doesn't want to waste time reading a book that doesn't have a good ending. And so what she'll do is she, if, if the book is good, then she'll say, well, then it's going to be worth my time. I'll read the rest of the book. And there's, there's something about that that's kind of an enjoyable way to read a book. Because you don't, what was the word in the psalmist used? You, you don't fret the whole time because you know the ending. What would it be like If we didn't feel like we always had to prove ourselves, what would it be like if we kind of knew the ending that he's chosen us? We inherit the land because it's his land and that we don't need to defend ourselves. Now, don't misunderstand. Let me be real clear. I'm not talking if you're in an abusive situation or if you're a spouse and your spouse is abusing you that somehow it's godly for you to to be abused. That's not what I'm saying at all. When I'm talking about choosing not to use your power against somebody, I'm not talking about abuse. It is never okay for someone to physically intimidate their spouse, their children in those sort of ways. That's always sin and always wrong. So when I talk about meekness, I'm not somehow talking about some sort of odd misunderstanding of submission that would allow such horrific sin as that. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But I am speaking of the incredible power, the incredible power you would possess. Can you imagine the power you would possess if you knew you could, but you could choose not to because you don't have anything to prove and you don't have to defend yourself all the time. You don't have to to make sure that everything you've said is if you have to watch over your words and your language because you don't have to defend yourself. We have an incredible propensity to defend ourselves and to, and to fret and to worry. And what would it be if we took seriously the words that Jesus said? And he said, You'll be happy. You'll be happy. You'll be blessed. If you figure out that you have my power, but you don't have to use it against people and you don't have to defend yourself all the time because I've already decided who you are. You've been chosen. You don't have to prove anything to anybody because you're mine. Now that, that would change the way you live. That would change the way you walk. That would change the way you love. Because you wouldn't have to spend all your time manipulating everybody, protecting yourself, making sure that you've got everything covered. I grew up in a family. Um, family I grew up in was a good family, I guess. My dad was real stoic. He was kind of an academic, very dignified. How I came from him, I'm not sure. I mean, I know that was the question you were asking. It, it doesn't make sense. I, I know. We have missionaries, kids who become drug addicts, drug addicts who become missionaries. Who understands? But somehow I came from that family. And when you grow up in a family that's pretty stoic, even 50 years later, you remember the moments of great warmth. And I remember my dad used to sometimes wrestle with Mike and I, my brother. And I remember those moments because they didn't happen very often. And I remember those moments because it was a pretty stoic family at times, but there were a few times that my dad would roll on the floor with us. And, and when he did, he'd, he'd put us in a scissor lock with his legs and, and he'd act like we were really strong and, he'd, and we were just weak. He could crush us like that. We were just little boys, eight and 10 years old, thinking we were strong. And he'd say, oh, you're so strong. And he'd, we'd push against his, his leg and he'd go, oh, I can't hold it anymore. Oh, the truth from this side is he was holding back his power for the sake of love. He was being meek. And it's one of the few memories that I have so vividly from those days. Oh, the great power of meekness the great power of somebody who has the authority, who has the power, but chooses for the sake of glory, for the sake of love, to not defend but to, and not crush, but to love. Well, that's the interesting call in this passage so i would suggest to you that when we think about what does it mean what does it mean for us to be meek it means that we wait as we sit between opposition and the eventual vindication that we wait patiently as it says in that psalm we don't fret we have, we don't live as if we have something to prove. And we allow our power be used for the glory of God, not for the crushing of another. Wow. What an invitation. And the second beatitude we're going to look at today is equally as interesting. It's when Jesus says this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. My goodness. Have I ever been satisfied? You know, if I were to do this sermon, it would be, you want to be satisfied? Eat all you can. You want to be satisfied? Drink all you can. You want to be satisfied? Make all the money you can. If you want to be satisfied, have all the fun you can. Get everything you can. There's even Christian books that basically say that. I've got bad news for us all. God has made this world that ultimately will not fully satisfy you. You live in a fallen world and there's something wrong with everything on this side of Eden and this side of heaven. And you won't be satisfied. I keep thinking if I just had enough money, if I just had a condo in Belize, if I just had a, I'm not sure, I've never been to Belize, but you get the idea. (laughs) And Jesus has the audacity, he has the audacity to look out at this crowd who's hungry and thirsty who wants to be satisfied in a world that doesn't satisfy him. And he says, you wanna be satisfied? Hunger and thirst for righteousness. What? I don't even think about righteousness. I think about condos and buffalo wild wings and, and the such. Wow. First, listen to the language Jesus uses. He knows us. He knows you. He knows me. He used the words thirst and hunger, strongest drives of a human being. It's, it's interesting. They would suggest, most psychologists would suggest that the three greatest drives in human beings he just met in these two verses power, Hunger and food, but what he says is, you need to have your stomach rumbling. You need to have that your your lips parched with a longing for righteousness. Do you see how visceral that is? Do you see the way he described us? He described us as thirsty and hungry people. And we are. The good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The bad news is this world will not satisfy you ultimately. Oh, the research shows it. Secular research shows it. The research on happiness shows that, that the average middle-class person is no happier than the average millionaire. I keep saying, I could do better than the average The person who's, who's, uh, even things that we value like looks and youth and money. Listen, chase them if you want. They'll give you all they can. Be thirsty and hungry for them. But the research says that they'll leave you wanting. They'll leave you thirsty. And they'll leave you hungry, and they'll just leave you wanting for more. And sometimes, don't you just want to get off that treadmill? Sometimes, don't you want to just say, I I just, is there any way to live a, a more satisfying life than that? And then Jesus comes along on this mountainside, and he says something as counterintuitive as here's what you need to be thirsty for. Oh, not wings? not money, not fame. Here's what you need to be thirsty for, for righteousness. And somehow, somehow as, as the deepest parts of you hunger with, with a growling stomach and the deepest parts of you are parched on your lips for, for righteousness that somehow You'll, you'll stumble towards satisfaction instead of living in that constant sense of there's never enough. There's never enough. There's never enough. What would it be like? What would it be like if for just one day, just one day before we get to glory, we could, we could stumble into living this way? That by the grace of God, we took him seriously enough to say, oh Lord, help me understand what it means to thirst, to hunger for righteousness. Now I'd suggest there's kind of three types of righteousness. There's theological, there's moral, and there's social. And I think Jesus is talking about all three. To hunger, to long for the first type of righteousness is, is that theological idea of righteousness, of being made right with God, that connection with God. The idea that you that the deepest longing in your soul, though we've hidden it, though we've pushed it away, the deepest longing in a human being is connection Because the because sin, when sin enters into our story, we're separate. Sin is always separating us. Satan's story is about separation. The garden was about separation. The, the sin in the garden was about separation. God's story of redemption is about connection. And the deepest longing of your soul is that first type of, of righteousness, that righteousness that comes from a right relationship with God. And the theologians would say that we have imputed righteousness, that because of the work of Christ, righteousness is placed on us. And we, and, but, but that longing for that relationship with Him to remain close that longing for that relationship to, with him to, to matter, for us to nurture and move toward him. And that's, that would be the most crucial type of righteousness. Now that type of righteousness ultimately is taken care of by the work of Christ. But then our participation in that sanctification process that is, is that longing for more connection, more intimacy with our Lord. That's the first type of righteousness. Second type of righteousness is what most people would call moral righteousness. That's that's uh, wanting to live. Uh, but, but that's the fruits of the spirit. That's living um, uh, in a, in a righteous way toward others, uh, thinking of others or yourself, thinking about uh, thinking about the the virtues, if you will, of, that God would want to have in a, in our lives as we relate to one another that we would relate, and then that's where we would talk about if that first type of righteousness is our relationship with God, longing for that to be made right. The second type of righteousness is that is our um, relationship with others and longing for that to be made right. As much as it is about me, I will be at peace with all men. That idea of I'm gonna live righteously before others, with others, The third type of righteousness would be a longing for justice and righteousness in the community, um, in society. That's social righteousness. I believe that God is, that Jesus is talking about all three of those. That he wants us to hunger. Hunger. Pain in your stomach. Hunger. Thirst. Thirst for a right relationship with him a right relationship with others a right relationship in our society in our with other with with our uh, the people around us oh the call to righteousness the call to live um as a with a hunger for righteousness instead of for a hunger for lesser things. So what's the takeaway? Last week, I suggested that you write a lament psalm. I did see a few people repenting last week. We talked about living poor and I saw many of you at Sam's afterwards. I was at Sam's with my son and I saw two or three people from the church there and we were all becoming poor together <laughs> until you bought 8,000 rolls of toilet paper. You've, at, at Sam's, you have not foolishly spent money yet and that's, that's, a, that's a great thing to do. So what would be a takeaway that you could do this week from these commands? Well, let me just suggest one. I'd like you to consider fasting for the sake of righteousness. Now, I could, use, I could miss a meal or two. Now, I don't want you to do it to lose weight. I don't want you to do it if your health's in trouble. But what would it be like for you just to feel a hunger pain sometime this week because you skipped a meal and think that that's the imagery Jesus was using on that hillside to say, I want you to feel that kind of tinge, that longing in the sense of that for me, for righteousness. So just a real practical application of our hunger and thirst for righteousness might be to skip a meal or two. And when you feel that hunger pain, be aware there's a lot of people in this world that are very hungry. Be aware there's a lot of people that feel that every single day. And part of your hunger for righteousness would be concerned about them But also as you feel that hunger pain to think about that's the image that God wants me to have as I think of him, to be hungry for him. Instead of just, okay, I'll be dutiful. You know, we were made to be more passionate than dutiful. We're image bearers of God, a passionate God. And most of us instead live dutiful lives instead of passionate lives. And Jesus on this hillside is an, Suggesting a very passionate life. So that would be a practical application to fast this week. Another practical application would be to read the psalm. Think about the meek. Think about what it would mean to acknowledge that you have power and ability, but then to choose to use it in such a way that doesn't destroy others, doesn't crush others, And choose to live in such a way that you don't have to defend yourself all the time. Jesus died on the cross. What held him to the cross were not nails. The physics of nails into wood did not hold Jesus on the cross, because he had all the power he wanted he'd wanted to, he could have called down angels and probably grabbed lightning bolts. While that was taking place, his father actually blocked off the sun, created an earthquake. So what held Jesus on the cross that day was not nails. It was meekness. It was power that's used In such a way, such a courageous way, that it's withheld for the sake of the glory of God. What held him on the cross that day was his love for you and his love for his father and his desire for the world to be redeemed. Men and women, I want to invite you today to join the courageous army of the meek. the courageous and powerful army of the meek. It's an army like no other because it has all the power, but it sits between opposition and vindication and is not fretting or worrying because it has nothing to prove because it knows the end of the story. So this week... I hope you'd let that invitation to live meekly with a great idea of inheritance. Oh, the inheritance. A gift good, given by a good father to his children. And remember that great inheritance will be all the land. Oh, and the promise that just makes my knees shake is the thought of being more satisfied than I've been. You won't be fully satisfied on this side of heaven. The idea of as you thirst and hunger for righteousness, there's satisfaction in a way that you'll never get with the lesser thing. May that go deeply in all of us this week. Let's pray. Father, give us the courage to enlist in your heroic army of the meek. Give us the courage to be people who who acknowledge their real hunger and their real thirst are not for mere little things but that their longings are much 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 deeper give us the courage to admit that our longings are for you for righteousness and this week would you be with us would you remind us Would the words from that hillside so long ago echo each day as we live? We pray in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.